I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the last three chapters of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapters 11 through 13. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Dedicated to faith, the theme of chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So chapter 11 here is the whole chapter dedicated to faith. A great definition of faith is seen in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Mull that over for a minute. It's a great definition. Now look at verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. These two verses need to be read as a pair. Verse 1 says that faith is substance. That's the Greek word hypostasis, which means foundation. And it's also evidence, the Greek word elenkos. These two words are strong foundational words that characterize our Christian walk. Hypostasis identifies a supporting structure, and elenkos identifies proof. In other words, faith provides the believer with a strong foundation and proof for Christian living. I know it seems like a strange concept to those who have not been saved in Christ, but to the believer, the faith of Christ strengthens the believer's walk, providing the foundation and proof that simply cannot be comprehended by the unregenerate. If you'd like to know more about this term, faith of Christ, then look at my notes in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the following... But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So you see, for the believer, the faith of Christ is substance and evidence enough to take to any court. And I rest my case. It was through faith that the elders, in verse 2, the patriarchs of the faith, were encouraged. Moreover, we accept by faith that our God is the God of creation. That's in verse 3. Verse 2 receives more detail regarding that good report in the following verses where we have the illustrations of Old Testament saints and the faith that they exercised. We'll see that the goal in view was eternal blessing, a reality after death, seen when we get down to verse 13. Now, being strangers here on earth, one day we'll all experience our residency in heaven. Now, let's read verses 4 through 12. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, 
being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So if that's not enough, just look at the demonstration of faith by these Old Testament examples. We have Abel in verse 4, that's recorded in Genesis 4. Enoch in verse 5, he's in Genesis chapter 5. Noah in verse 7, we find him in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and following. And then Abraham in verses 8 and 17. We find him in Genesis chapter 12 and also Genesis chapter 22. Look at the notes on both of those chapters and you'll find him in the chapters in between. And then we have Sarah mentioned in verse 11 here. Read about her promise and receipt of that promise in Genesis chapter 18. Verse 13 now. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verses 13 through 16 point out that these Old Testament saints did not realize the fulfillment of their faith during their lifetime on earth, yet they obeyed through faith anyway. They did, however, realize a heavenly reward for their faith. Verse 14 makes the particular point that Abraham and Sarah could have gone back to Mesopotamia at any time, but they chose God's promises over the place where their own relatives were located. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now here we're told why Abraham was so cooperative with God about slaying his son Isaac in verses 17 through 19. Abraham's faith is commended here in the incident involving the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham on the altar in Genesis chapter 22. That faith was based upon God's previous promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 verse 19. That verse says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Since Abraham had received the promise of God that his own promises from God would continue through Isaac, and that was even before Isaac's birth, then he literally believed that if God allowed him to go through with the sacrifice, he would raise him from the dead. Since Isaac had no children at that point in time, Abraham knew that he would return home with a living, breathing Isaac. Now that is faith. 
We should take a closer look at verse 17 so as to clear up any misunderstandings about the phrasing there. The reference to Isaac in that verse lists him as his only begotten son. Let me read you an entry from the Luanida Greek Dictionary regarding the usage of the word translated only begotten there. That Greek word is monogonais. Monogonais pertaining to what is unique in the sense of being the only one of the same kind or class. Now, with regard to its specific usage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, the dictionary goes on to explain this. Abraham, of course, did have another son, Ishmael, and later sons by Keturah. But Isaac was a unique son in that he was a son born as the result of certain promises made by God. Accordingly, he could be called a monogamous son, since he was the only one of his kind. There is no question that the writer of Hebrews knew about Abraham's other sons. However, he makes the point that Isaac was unique as the only son through whom the promise of Genesis chapter 17, verse 19 had been made. Let's continue reading now with verse 20 of chapter 11. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin." esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned." By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Well, we continue with the acts of faith of more Old Testament examples in these verses. Here are the Old Testament saints who believed outside the bounds of their circumstances based upon the supernatural faith in God. We have Isaac, and he's recorded in Genesis 27:29. Isaac includes the Abrahamic blessing of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in his blessing regarding the prosperity of Jacob's descendants when he says, he says this in Genesis 27:29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now that, as I mentioned, is including the promise that God had given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Then we have the mention of Jacob in verse 21. The specific promise fulfilled there is Genesis chapter 48. In verse 4 of that chapter, Jacob recounts God's promise and says this, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. 
And then the blessings of uh, Joseph's sons follows that. And then we have Joseph mentioned in verse 22. The particular instance is Genesis chapter 50. In chapter 50, verse 25, here's what we read. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. In that verse, Joseph again stated his faith that Israel would leave Egypt one day. Then in verse 23, we have the example of Moses' mom. Exodus chapter 2, verse 2 is referenced here. It says, So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. The King James Version there says that he was a goodly child. Beautiful is from the Greek word asteos, which means that Moses was an attractive child. That's the same word used in the Septuagint of Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. That's a translation of Hebrew, the Hebrew word tob, which could refer to either his countenance or his appearance. Then we find the illustration of Moses himself in verse 24. Moses made this choice when he stood for the Hebrews against the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And that required, of course, Moses to forsake Pharaoh's household. Then we have the uh, illustration of Israel itself upon their exit from Egypt in verse 29. That's recorded in Exodus chapter 14. It took faith to walk through the dry riverbed with that water on each side of them. And then we have another illustration of Israel as they captured Jericho in verse 30. That's recorded in Joshua chapter 6. This was quite a unique battle. It was a battle plan defying traditional battle plans, as a matter of fact, conceived through faith in God. And then we have Rahab in verse 31. Rahab trusted God's deliverance of her family and herself. Gideon's in verse 32. Uh, Gideon is in chapter 6 of Judges. He trusted God for victory in battle. Then Barak in verse 32 also recorded in Judges chapter 4. Barak trusted God for victory in battle as well. And then Samson in verse 32. With all of Samson's shortcomings, his final act of Philistine destruction came as he called upon God. And then Jephthah in verse 32. He's recorded in Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah trusted God for victory in battle, even though he's notorious for having made a very unwise oath. And then David in verse 32. In 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17, David was faithful to God's promises throughout his life. And then Samuel in verse 32 is recorded here. 1 Samuel chapter 3, we see that Samuel followed God's leadership as he anointed David, king of Israel. And then finally, the prophets, verse 32. All the Old Testament prophets, all demonstrators of faith. Now let's read verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. 
God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How about a generalized summary of all those Old Testament saints, what all they endured because of their faith, beginning in verse 33? That's what we have here. Verses 34 through 38 would seem to include the trials endured through the Maccabean period as well. That's the period between the Old and New Testaments. Regarding all of these witnesses, verse 39 says this, They did not receive the promise. What promise? Well, the Messiah. Jesus at crucifixion and resurrection is in view here. Of course, there is another phase to that promise, which is fulfilled at the beginning of the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 records that. But the first advent of Jesus fulfills that promise by perfecting them and us with his sacrifice on the cross to pay our sin debt. Thus they and we are made perfect, as recorded in verse 40. The Greek verb teleao means to make complete. Like ourselves, they were not made complete until Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had been completed. So what's the lesson here? Well, these people acted by faith the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the example of their faith strengthens our faith. We continue talking about these Old Testament saints as we enter chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. Well, the witnesses here are those Old Testament saints mentioned in chapter 11 that so mightily demonstrated their faith in God. The Greek word for witnesses here is martus. It's used 34 times in the New Testament, and it's used in the context of giving one's testimony. What kind of testimony are we talking about here? Well, it's a testimony regarding faith in God. These witnesses surround us with a testimony of faith. Wise people who embark upon a new adventure consult others who have previously been on a similar adventure. Well, here are your people who've been on the adventure of faith. Now go do likewise. In chapter 11, verse 40, we see that the finished work of Jesus on the cross made perfect all believers, as we see in verse 2. And that verse also makes reference to the exalted position of Jesus as the high priest as portrayed in the Messianic Psalm 110. That's where it refers to Jesus as being at the right hand of the throne of God. We've seen the faith and endurance of the witnesses of chapter 11. Now let's consider the trials of Jesus himself in verse 3. The recipients to this letter are then told in verse 4 that they have not yet been called upon to make similar personal sacrifices, well, up to this point. Then we have the principle of chastisement in verses 5 through 17 of chapter 12. It's the action of a loving God to his people, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? 
But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the moment, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Well, now Paul transitions over to a different topic, chastisement. Why are these words here after the big faith chapter? He actually still addresses the people to whom he spoke in chapter 10, those people who seem to be struggling with the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Look at my notes on chapter 10, verses 24 through 39 for more details there. So if not by requiring repeated sacrifices to renew salvation, how does God deal with disobedient believers? Well, the answer is chastisement. He introduces it in verse 5 where he begins quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. When we disobey God, he doesn't expect another sacrifice to be offered by the offender, as the Jews were accustomed to doing, but instead he expects a confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9 says it simply like this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if we as believers don't confess our rebellion against God? Well, right at the heart of this chapter 12 are verses 6 through 8. Here's what those verses say. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Then Paul continues to paraphrase from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. It's important to see the contrast here and recognize that he's trying to pick up the principles of chapter 10. God uses chastisement, not loss of salvation, to correct believers, just like an earthly father uses chastisement to correct his children. Look at the notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, and pay close attention to verses 29 to 32. God doesn't cast out disobedient believers. He chastises them until they turn from their disobedience, or they die, whichever comes first. 1 Corinthians 11.32 is clear. It says, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. God does the judging and chastising. As a matter of fact, we don't see this principle for the first time here. It permeates the entire Old Testament. It's explicitly stated to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. Here's what that verse says. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord, your God, chastens you. 
Paul uses verses 10 and 11 to establish a comparison between the chastisement of earthly fathers as compared to that of God, our Father. Then in verses 12 through 17, he encourages the Hebrews to walk an acceptable walk as believers by using some Old Testament imagery, part of which appears to be taken from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Christian people who experience challenging times in their lives often ask this question, Am I being chastised? Well, maybe. I've written an article entitled Trial Versus Chastisement, which you can look at under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or if you're looking at the written notes for today, there's a link right here. Verse 15 is interesting as a follow-up to the chastisement verses. Two Greek participles, both of them present active participles, are used which are a little difficult to simply translate into English without being a little bit wordy. Well, if wordy is a word. The first participle is literally to be understood as the first identifier of two kinds of Christian people, those who are looking carefully in their Christian walk. Literally, we're talking about those people who are being careful and following God's leading in their lives. The second contrasting group of people, described also by a participle here, are those who are not weathering their Christian life as successfully, and they're called the ones who fall short of the grace of God here. Now, being a present active participle in Greek means a continuing action. The root of this participle means to lack or be late or postpone. When turned into a Greek participle, it describes a group of people who are presently demonstrating a lack in the grace or favor, the Greek word charis, favor, favor of God. In other words, those being chastised for their disobedience. It's a nice summation of the preceding verses on the chastisement of believers, an exhortation to be believers who are careful in their walk with the Lord as opposed to being believers who are careless or lacking in their walk with the Lord. And then there's your example of one who misses a blessing by being in that second category. His name is Esau. Jacob took care. Esau was careless. Jacob experienced Isaac's blessing of the firstborn. Esau was miserable. Notice that this example illustrates the resulting quality of life of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was blessed, and Esau was a very unhappy man. Now we continue reading with chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, and now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. In verses 18 through 24, we see an Old Covenant-New Covenant comparison. Again, here, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 8. Mount Sinai is seen in verses 18 to 21 in reference to the sight, sounds, and reality of Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Zion here is a reference to Jerusalem, as it is all through the Old Testament. He contrasts the harshness of the law of Moses as associated with Mount Sinai to the new covenant and the new Jerusalem, which is heavenly. Revelation chapter 21 is where we read about that. And it's eternal and based upon grace, not law. Jesus is the mediator of that covenant, according to verse 24. His blood atones for sin, which makes it superior to the blood of Abel, where it's said by God to Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 10. It says this, And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, just in case you still think that Paul's addressing people who almost get saved but don't, verse 23 ought to settle that issue. If you wonder about that, look at my notes on chapter 10 of Hebrews. Uh, Verse 23 says, "...to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect." The Greek noun used for general assembly here is panagoras. It's used only here in the entire New Testament. It's a compound word meaning universal gathering. The Greek word for church here is ekklesia, the usual word for church in the New Testament. The usage of the word firstborn in verse 23 is quite interesting, though a bit technical. Follow me closely here. The Greek word for firstborn is protokos and is only used nine times in the entire New Testament, all of them singular except here and in Hebrews 11.28. In Hebrews 11.28, it refers to the slain firstborn of Egypt at the Exodus. All other New Testament occurrences refer to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of all who are bound for heaven. Paul almost exclusively quotes from the Septuagint. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. God declares in Exodus chapter 34, verse 19, the following. He says, All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. The Greek word used in the Septuagint for firstborn there is protokos again. That's the very same word Paul uses here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 for firstborn. Only in this context is firstborn found to be plural. You'll notice that these firstborn of the Old Testament later were replaced by the Levites in Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 16. The Levites were the priests under the Mosaic law. Christians are priests after the order of Melchizedek. We read that in Hebrews chapter 7, and that's also according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That's where believers are referred to as the royal priesthood. Therefore, Christians are the church of the firstborn, just as the Levite priests of the Old Testament were dedicated to God. Verse 23 goes on to say of believers the following, who are registered in heaven. Couple that with the spirits of just men made perfect, and, well, that should just about settle the issue regarding to whom verse 23 is addressing. In verse 24, we see a reference to the blood of Abel mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. While Abel's blood was not sufficient to save, Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, is able to save. So what about those who, in verse 25, refuse God's commands? 
Well, they were physically chastised. Hey, that's the subject of this chapter in the book of Hebrews, physical chastisement. If these Christian Hebrews reject this message from God, they will be physically chastised just like their Old Testament ancestors who also refused. And then there's that reference to the shaking of the earth in verses 26 and 27. That, of course, refers to Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, when Mount Sinai shook. He then refers to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, with the promise that says, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. That shaking comes at the end of this present world in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. There it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So the point, what is the point? Well, everything on this earth comes to an end, but those who are saved by the grace of God will live eternally. That's what verse 28 says. As believers, we are part of a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's the context in which we serve God. And the fire of verse 29? Well, for that, we once again look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, that says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Everything on this earth will pass away, except for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, a faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's an important key to chapter 12. It's talking about chastisement of believers all the way through the chapter, beginning with verse 5. When reading this chapter, we must not lose sight of that very theme. Now, if you really want to get a grasp on the book of Hebrews, let me propose this. If chapter 12 is talking about believers, and we saw their chastisement, the church of the firstborn, and so forth, then is not that finishing up on the discussion with which Paul was dealing in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26? So if chapter 12 is about saved people, then chapter 10, verse 26, and the following verses in that chapter, that must be about saved people also. If chapter 10, verse 26 is about saved people, then chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, well, that's also about saved people because the phraseology about Christ and sacrifice is the exact same. And that's why studying Scripture in context is so vital to rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, I know if you're driving down the road in your car, you probably didn't follow that last paragraph, but I would encourage you to take your Bible and look at those references and see if you don't agree. Then in chapter 13 of Hebrews, we have some parting comments. Verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, 
not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. We find hospitality dealt with in verses 1 and 2. The Greek word for brotherly love in verse 1 is Philadelphia. The entertaining of angels in verse 2 reminds us of Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. We find the prayer for those in bonds because of their faith in verse 3 and the sanctity of marriage in verse 4. Now, here's an endorsement of sexual intimacy within the marriage relationship, and, by the way, a condemnation of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Contentment is the subject of verses 5 and 6. The Greek word for covetousness there is ophilagoras. This compound word is comprised of a beginning, uh, alpha, or a in English, which makes it negative, followed by phil, which is the root for love, philia, followed by argyros, which is the word for silver. In other words, not a lover of silver. The presence of Jesus abiding in our lives through the Holy Spirit should be enough to give us, as Christians, contentment. Then in verse 7, the subject is follow leaders whose lives reflect godliness. The Greek word for conduct in that verse is anastrophe, which refers to one's behavior. We'll see more detail on that in verses 17 and 18. And then in verse 8, we see that leaders come and go, but Christ remains the same. This verse sets up the following verses regarding doctrinal error that was being taught. Christ remains the same, and his doctrine just does not change. Paul combats some doctrinal error being taught in verses 9 through 16. Some Old Testament practice is referenced here. We don't know what it is. It's not obvious what this doctrinal error being taught was, but these verses are designed to set it straight. It appears to be some variant of Judaizer, of the Judaizer message that Paul continually taught against. Those who serve the tabernacle in verse 10, well, that's a reference to people still bound by the law of Moses. 
Verse 11 refers to the Mosaic law regarding the sacrifice made on behalf of the high priest. We see that in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus, it says, suffered outside the gate, just as the high priest was required to go outside the camp to a clean place to finish his sacrifice. This picture equates Jesus as the high priest. That being the case, our lives should continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That's in verse 15. Our sacrifice is a godly lifestyle. Verse 16. We see in verses 17 and 18 that good leadership is to be followed, similar to the admonition of verse 7. The Greek word for obey there is a little different than what you might expect. It's actually the Greek word pytho, which is used in the present imperative passive. It means to let yourself be persuaded. That's followed by an admonition to be submissive. That's another imperative. It's hupeko, which commands us to surrender that authority. This verse demonstrates the magnitude of responsibility for those who are responsible for the spiritual nurturing of other people. Verse 18 follows with a prayer request for strength to be a good spiritual leader. In his final words, Paul gives a summarized doctrinal position of this letter to the Hebrews. He does so in verses 20 and 21. We see in those two verses that, first of all, God is a God of peace that God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus was the great shepherd of the sheep, made possible, of course, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then finally, may Jesus make you complete. That Greek word is kartartidzo, and it means to be fit or complete in every good work to do his will. The aorist active optative for katartidzo is used here to express a desire for them to be well-pleasing in his sight as a result of the good work that they do. Finally, the close to the letter is shorter than in most of Paul's letters, seen in verses 22 through 25. The exhortation of verse 22 comes from the Greek word paraklesis, meaning to comfort or console. That uh, refers back to Paul's encouragement in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when he says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." Now, paraklesis, by the way, is a noun. It means comfort or consolation. The word exhort in Hebrews 10:25, exhorting one another, that's the verb form parakaleo. Finally, we see more evidence that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews with his reference to the Christians in Italy sending their greetings. Hey, Paul was in Italy. And by the way, he was transported there after he was arrested and appealed to Caesar in Acts chapter 25. And finally, Paul's standard close in verse 25 when he says, Grace be with you all. Amen. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.